This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Lucky to be joined on Football CFB by Guy Havard. Guy is a reporter for Sky Sports. He also has been a commentator for many years and he, he was part of the, the Premier League years team and he was the voiceover on that show for, for a fair few seasons, which is a show that I make no bones about it. I absolutely adore. First of all, Guy, how are you? I'm really well, really well. Um, yeah, we're, we're sort of getting through it at the moment, aren't you? You're teaching from home and I'm one of the lucky ones who can still go out and about and uh, and get to football matches. You, you mentioned going out and about and, and getting to, to football matches. Obviously, you've you've covered football for, for over 20 years for, for Sky Sports. How strange has this period been for you going into stadiums such as Old Trafford or the new Tottenham Stadium, Anfield, these iconic venues that that are normally so passionate and, and loud, but I've been reduced to, to an eerie silence at times because of the situation, of course. Yeah, it, it, it's incredibly strange, actually. I, I, I was thinking just that, and I've done a lot of matches um, in this environment, but I was doing the Manchester United, Manchester City uh, Carabao Cup semi-final, um, and City came out, didn't they, in the, the Colin Bell top, number eight on the back, and just thought how emotional it was. And then you sort of look around and there's absolutely nobody in the stadium and this sort of iconic fixture for a place at Wembley and there's nobody in the stadium apart from sort of 250, 300 of us. And it it makes you sort of amazingly grateful to be there. But it's a strange feeling to think that so many people outside the stadium are watching this, but 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 nobody inside the stadium is watching it. So, yeah, it, it has been really strange. I still find the weirdest time of the day because, you know, when you work in television, you have to get there so early. So all my career, I've got to a ground three hours, four hours before a kickoff because you've got things to do. You have to be on site to be prepared. So you often arrive when the ground is empty anyway and, and, and outside the ground is very quiet. But the, the moment that sort of hit me post-lockdown when we got back with empty stadiums was not so much the game with no fans in, but it was walking out of the ground afterwards and being so used to thousands of people being outside the ground, the, the, the roads jammed with cars that you couldn't move. And yet I just walked out and there was nobody there. And it was almost like, has this actually happened? <laughs> it's, am I, are we the only sort of people inside the ground that have witnessed this? It, it, it still remains the strangest feeling to walk out of a ground and just nobody there at all. It, it, it has been really peculiar. And then when the fans came back, when was it? Just before Christmas. The difference was like night and day. I did a game at Goodison and there were only 2,000 inside there, but you know, it sounds like a cliche, there were 40,000, but the difference between no fans and 2,000 was just huge. And it was so sad that we even lost the 2,000 and the 4,000 that we sort of started to build up just before Christmas. And we're back to the situation now of no fans at all. But, you know, I think we can see 
we can see some daylight, can't we? And hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll get back to sort of filling the grounds again. Absolutely. I think that's something that, that football clubs, fans and, and even neutrals like, because when you watch a, a big game, even if it's from the Premier League, from, from me in Scotland or a game in the continent, having the crowd can, can really add to your experiences as a viewer. And of course, it adds when, when you're in a ground watching a game. The, the next question I've got for you, Guy, and, and I know you and your colleagues at Sky, you're professional in everything that you do. See with the the lack of fans in the ground, when you're conducting your post-match or pre-match interviews, do you feel, in, 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 a, in a way, a sense of added responsibility because you're in the ground and you're telling that story to literally the, the full fan base of the club? Because obviously, normally, you would be in the ground, you'd be telling the story of the game to those at home, but you would have 50,000 at the ground, whereas at the moment, you are literally broadcasting to every fan because nobody's in. Yeah, a little bit. I must admit, in the first sort of few games um, when we did return, I did get a sort of feeling of more people watching, you know, because they are, sadly, too many of us are stuck at home. And so, yeah, I did have more of a sense of more people listening than previously, maybe. Um, but I think you sort of get that out of your head fairly quickly because you're just so much... Um, involved in the interview that all you're trying to do really is just try and conduct the interview and I think I've always tried to sort of bat away how many people might be listening or watching um, to what you're doing otherwise it can be <laughs> a bit overwhelming to be honest so I just tend to think it's me and the manager having a post-match chat or me and a player having a post-match chat with the cameraman alongside me and that's it and I try and sort of take that away but yeah you do feel sort of a, a, an extra responsibility uh, in these times to try and get as much information from the players and the managers as you can. You, you mentioned those post-match interviews. That that level of, of um, scrutiny that's on a manager or a player after a game, particularly after a defeat, can, can, be, can be a lot for, for them to take and you can understand why. How do you prepare for a post-game interview? Because... As I've just alluded to, you're speaking to people at the height of the emotion just after a game of football. Yeah, well, the preparation begins the day before, often, as long as I've, you know, I've got a, a, a day before. Sometimes you do back-to-back -back games, so it might be you know, in, you get up early in the morning and you do as much prep as you can. I, I'm a real firm believer in that you put in as many hours beforehand and then you sort of get some reward at the end, or at least you, if you, it all goes wrong, you can't say you didn't prepare properly so for example tomorrow I'm doing Leeds against Brighton now I haven't covered Leeds this year I've watched them obviously on the television they've been sensational but I need to sort of go into the minutiae of Leeds this afternoon to understand what the formation is what the mood music is as well so you do that with stats but also it's watching interviews with Bielsa post-match um, and maybe sensing his irritation with something that's not going right or whether it be VAR or whether it be fixture congestion. So then watching his press conference that he'll conduct um, either today, 24 hours before the game, or he may have done it yesterday. I'll have to check that. And the same with Graham Potter as well. So you try and sort of get a sense of what the manager is going through, what the team are going through. Are they on a winning run, a losing run? That's the basics, but are they getting the rub of the green? Are they hitting the post or are they, creating nothing are they having issues with injuries suspensions are, are the fans getting on the back so 
when you do interview someone post-match and we'll do an interview pre-match when they're a lot more relaxed generally and you know it, it those are rarely contentious because you're just talking about the game and team news and how much you want to win etc but post-match you'll obviously deal with the game and there'll be a lot of incidents to deal with but I think it's important to remember your preparation beforehand where the club is where the team are what little nuances that they've had gripes if they've had a couple of games where VAR has gone against them and if it goes for them on this occasion you can bring that into the, the conversation maybe a change of luck or whatever if you change your views on VAR or if another one goes against them then you know you can just tickle them and and if they went off last week they'll probably, probably go off again this week so uh, preparation beforehand is really important and then obviously during the game you're watching it like a hawk you are I'm sort of preparing questions almost from the off you know imagine this game was to finish nil nil what could I talk about here? Not from the off, but, you know, half an hour in, an hour in, a possible sending off. You're making notes of all these things and you'll end up with, I don't know, 15, 20 potential questions in your head, which you obviously can't do. The average post-match interview is probably, I don't know, three minutes, four minutes, if that sometimes. Sometimes you're told to wrap up in one minute 30. So you might only have two or three questions. and that, So it's then, you know, deciphering what the important questions um and what aren't the important questions? And I always sort of had a, a view that it's not just the moment, the interview. I always feel that the interview should stand 24 hours later. And I always had a an image in my head of what's the back page headline going to be tomorrow? So if I was doing a, a game on a Sunday, what are the tabloids going to be leading with tomorrow morning from that game, if indeed they lead from that game? And, and so that's a sense of getting the feeling of, the result and the moment, but also maybe the bigger picture. So for Brighton tomorrow, they haven't won in, I think it's nine games. And, you know, they've, they've had lots of draws, but they're not winning. So what's the bigger picture? Are they are they dangerous slipping into a relegation zone? Is there a worry? Um, so, yeah, the bigger picture and, and sort of the moment, the full-time whistle moment. You've spoken to so many big characters over the years. You think of Sir Alex Ferguson, you think of Jose Mourinho, Pep Guardiola. Do you remember a point in your career where you had that first moment of, wow, the, the aura of this person coming in for you to speak to them post-match? Do, do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah, all, all day long. I mean, it, don't forget before Sky, I, I was a, a journalist um, in local radio. So I think you're more daunted because you're in your early 20s and so you've just come from watching these heroes on the terrace and on television and then suddenly you're interviewing them. One of my first jobs was at Radio City in Liverpool. Um, I went there in the late 80s and Kenny Dalglish was the manager. Now Kenny Dalglish was unbelievably big for me as a kid. I didn't support Liverpool but as a player he was probably the best player of that generation and then became a hugely successful manager. And then suddenly there I am interviewing him, you know, at Anfield down the corridor. And so, yeah, I was hugely daunted by that. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson, yes, interviewed him loads and loads of times. And he was um, daunting, daunting, not in, in any pressure that he put on you during it. But, you know, this is Alex Ferguson. He's the governor. He, he's the best manager, arguably, that we've ever seen. So you really were on your mettle. You had to make sure you knew what you were going to ask. You, you, you 
didn't want to ask anything that was slightly woolly or or could lead them to be irritated with you, which has happened on times, uh, you know, times to time where you ask a stupid question and it gets batted back. Um, so yeah, continually daunted, to be honest. Um, you know, even now I, you meet some people and you think, wow, I'm interviewing Ronaldo or whoever. Um, so it doesn't go actually. It's strange, isn't it? I'm in my early fifties now and, and that sort of adulation uh, of sportsmen it is still there for me. I'm still sort of a, a 15 year old kid, I think. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, when, when you're in that moment post match and you have a manager who is potentially irritated because of their team's performance or a refereeing decision that they see has gone against them or they believe's gone against them, when you're speaking to someone who isn't necessarily in the mood to give you a lot back, how do you handle that situation? I'm, I'm thinking of Jose Mourinho in the past where he's the post-match interview where he said, I've only got four things to say and he wants to <laughs> four points and leave. How do, how do you deal with that? Because obviously I imagine your producers in your ear saying, like, let's try and get three or four minutes from him. Yeah, well, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, Jose Mourinho did a very similar thing to me, actually. Um after a semi-final for Man United in the League Cup, they crack. They got to Wembley, that was the irony, but I think they lost to Hull in the second leg. And he came in and he started talking. He gave his answer and then just walked away. And I think I actually said, are you going? And he just walked. Um, and that was it. And it's not like you can do it. If a manager walks on you, he walks on you. That wasn't my fault. You know, he decided and he, I think he does it less now, doesn't he? But there was a period where Basically, he decided the interview and, and the, the post-match press conference, how it was going to be handled and what he was going to say and when he was going to walk. Um, but how do you squeeze something out of some, something out of somebody who, when they don't want to talk, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. You, you almost have to just, I feel, keep nudging them very gently and, and hope that they will see that their answers, their one-word answers aren't coming across very well and they're not coming across very well. Um, but to remain polite and maybe ask the same question again in a slightly different way. Um, but even that can backfire. And, and sometimes you just have to hold your hand up and accept that it's gone wrong. <laughs> and sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it is your fault. You asked the wrong question. I've certainly done that. And I've had managers walk out on me because I think I've persisted a little bit too much with a certain line of questioning. Um, but sometimes the manager is so irritated with the referee, the his players, whatever, that there's not a lot you can do. And you can only just try and nudge and nerdle and hope to get something out of him. And then if it it's not happening, you just have to close it down and say, thanks very much for your time. And then let the viewers sort of make their own decisions about how that interview went and, and what they got, because they're not interested in me. They're only interested in the person I'm talking to. Did they as supporters get to hear you know, a good recollection and, and a response to, to, to the game that's just gone on. You you summed up perfectly there by saying that after a game, they, they want to hear from the manager and they don't necessarily want to hear from the, the reporter, in, in this case yourself. So given that that's the way you approach things, how do you handle it when a manager sometimes tries to turn the table? I think of Jurgen Klopp coming to my mind and uh, Pep Guardiola in recent years where there's been a contentious penalty or an offside. 
and they've they've said to the reporter, including yourself, sometimes, well, what do you think of that decision? How do you handle situations like that? Because as you've rightly said, you, it must put you in an awkward position because the football fan in you wants to come out and give your opinion, but at the same time, you know it's it's about them for that three minutes rather than yourself. Yeah, that that's probably the hardest thing you've got to cope with because you are programmed to go in there and ask questions get an answer, ask questions, get an answer. And certainly when you ask a question and a question comes back at you, you're just, I'm not saying you're not prepared for that, but it happens so rarely that it really does shake you because you think, whoa, hang on, this isn't the way we set up this interview. It's supposed to be the other way around. You don't ask me questions. Um, So you then have to decide, obviously on the spur of the moment, do I answer this question honestly or, or is anybody interested in my view and I, for, for, for quite some time, I just generally said, well, nobody's interested in what I think, Jürgen or Pep or whatever. We're interested really in what you think. Um, and then if you bat it back, you, you, you maybe have to be honest and, and say how you saw it. And that's why when you're watching a penalty decision during the game, you have to formulate your opinion whether you thought it was a penalty based not just on yourself but but also you, you're lucky if you've got a commentator and a co-commentator who are calling it during the game and then you'll have you know Graham Souness or, or, or Jamie Redknapp who uh, Gary Neville will then review it at half time and full time whether they thought it was a penalty so to be honest as, a, as, a, as an interview you've always got a bit of a fallback position where you could say well Gary Neville thought it was a penalty or you know Jamie Redknapp's seen loads of replays and he thought it was a penalty. He thought it wasn't a penalty, <laughs> which is slightly <laughs> cowardly, I admit, because you can <laughs> basically dob them in it. But I think that at least says, well, look, I didn't play football to your level, but these lads did. So that's their opinion. And they've watched probably more replays than you have at this moment in time. So that's all I can say. But yeah, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. I remember, ironically, Jamie Redknapp did that to me Um a game at Aston Villa when he was obviously playing for Liverpool and he <laughs> being Jamie Redknapp and sorry you're not Jamie Redknapp Jamie Carragher sorry it's Jamie Carragher who kept asking me you know what do you think what do you think you've seen it what do you think and uh, it was quite embarrassing in the end I said look no one's interested in what I think oh we should have an opinion but it was um, it was quite funny but yeah that's that's the thing I think probably you fear more than most is when they start asking you questions which may lead to Martin O'Neill I don't know <laughs> well, I'm going to come to that shortly, but one of the ones I want to just touch on briefly as well was poor Esri Conza when, when you broke the news to him that he thought he'd scored in the Premier League and it turns out it was Tyrone Mings. What are those moments like? Because, again, as football fans, we love to see moments like that because they, 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 it just sums up the, the natural emotion that we all feel at home and, and Conza certainly showed it that night. Yeah, fantastic, wasn't it? His reaction was brilliant. You know, for a moment, when he, when he sank to his knees, I was thinking, might this play out badly for him that he's come across possibly as, as selfish or whatever? And I didn't want that to come across at all. And I, and I think we sort of debated whether we, we sort of put it to air. It didn't, did it? Because it showed someone, because they won the game with the, with the last-minute winner, obviously. So that was the, the emotion was winning the game as much as anything. I forget as well that I can almost hear the roar because the Villa Park was packed. They just beat Watford. It was a huge result for them um, at the bottom of the table because they were struggling at the time. But yeah, it was just such a beautiful, natural reaction from someone, which 
let's be fair, we'd all feel like that, wouldn't we? You know, we'd all feel we just scored our first goal for our club in the Premier League that has won this crucial game and it's been taken away from us. And and that's probably how we'd all feel when the when the door was closed in our own home. Um and so it was it was lovely that it was captured. It wasn't live when it was done, it was recorded. Um, but I'm I'm so pleased that everybody felt a warmth towards him and no one even suggested, well, that's a bit selfish because it wasn't. It was just a, a lovely natural reaction. And he's obviously scored a few goals since, so um, so that's been great for him. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you, we've talked about speaking to someone post-game. The, the art of the press conferences, Sir Alex Ferguson and Josie Mourinho and so many other high-profile managers over the year have said is, is very important to, to as, as Fer- Ferguson always said, to, to assert control and show that you are handling the situation. For managers, obviously, they can get a wee bit prickly, it's fair, fair to say, if they're under a bit of pressure. And I know you had a particular incident you, you've, you've talked about before with Martin O'Neill, where Declan Rice was, he, he was expected to play for Ireland, but there was ongoing rumours that he was going to declare for England. And at Sky, with your colleagues, you you'd sources that had told you that that was going to be the case and and I don't think Martin quite expected it did he? No it was um, <laughs> and look back and laugh at it now but it was yeah it was quite a, a, an eventful day um, so we had a press conference at the Aviva Stadium um, for the start of I think it was the Nations League so it's only Martin O'Neill there the, the, the match is still sort of a couple of weeks away and he'd announced his squad and Declan Rice wasn't in the squad, which was a major talking point because he had played a couple of friendlies for them during the summer. So the talking point was, why isn't Declan Rice in it, the squad? Um, so we did the press conference with Martin O'Neill and he said, well, you know, he's just having a bit of time to think now about whether he, he he's going to continue with us or, or England. But I'm, I'm hopefully will commit to, to commit to Ireland. The press conference finished. Martin O'Neill then went into another room to do a, another series of interviews with newspaper journalists. So that that room was sort of sealed off. And in the meantime, I got a call from, uh, from Sky Sports News saying that Rob Dorset, our reporter with England, who very well sourced, had found out that basically he felt Declan Rice was set to declare for England and the papers were being put in motion and that it was a, a done deal. Hadn't been announced, but Rob was going out on a limb and saying Declan Rice is going to commit to England. So so the, the remaining journalists who weren't in the, the newspaper room said, wow, this is, this is changing news. We have to ask Martin O'Neill about this. And I said, well, how can we ask him? We've just had the press conference. So they all basically got together and doorstepped Martin O'Neill. Now, when you say doorstep, it, it, it literally means stand on someone's doorstep. So it normally means standing outside their house, standing outside their office. But we were standing outside a room that he'd just gone into. So poor old Martin O'Neill comes out of this room. We're still inside the stadium. And suddenly there's all these cameras pointing at him. And quite rightly, he's going, what on earth is going on? Um, and then it was put to him that Sky Sports News was now reporting that Declan Rice was going to commit to England. Um, and he very nimbly said, well, you better ask Guy Havel, then he knows. He works for Sky. Guy, what's happening? And then suddenly all the cameras that were pointed on Martin O'Neill were pointed on me. And going back to what I said previously, there's nothing worse than being sort of the centre of attention or, or the person 
that has to suddenly answer a question. Um, and that was, yeah, it was quite embarrassing, but in the end, quite funny because Martin O'Neill just said that was the best way of handling it from his point of view, was just to bat it over to me. And and in that situation, um, when, when Rice eventually declares for England, do you have any other contact with Martin O'Neill where he says, "See, I know you. Are, I knew you knew." Do you know what? I think I may be wrong, but I think Martin O'Neill might have gone before Declan Rice actually committed because it went on for a long time, didn't it? I know certainly Declan Rice never returned to the Ireland squad, and for a lot of the, the subsequent get-togethers, Declan Rice was a point of conversation. Um, you know, have you heard any news? You know, and I think he went to meet the family and everything. So Martin O'Neill might have gone by then. But to be honest, <laughs> be honest, Callum, I don't think it'd be too wise for me to say, yep, uh, not only have you lost him, but I was right. So, uh, no, I, th- I think it's best avoided that. <laughs> um, yeah. Another aspect of, of your career that I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to get your insight into is the Premier League years. You you were the voiceover for the Premier League years for a number of seasons. It's one of those shows that whenever it's whenever Sky play it, I've got it in series link. I won't I won't pretend I don't. Um, it's one of those shows that when it's on, so many people when they're off of work or whatever it may be, watch it because it brings back so many memories. What was it like being involved in that iconic show? Really good, really good. Um, I agree with you totally. I mean, Georgie Thompson, for me, still is the voice of the Premier League years. There's something about hearing, just hearing her voice. She did it for for, for many years while she was at Sky and then um, moved on to to Pastures News. So um, I took over from her. But I agree, it's... It's a moment in time, isn't it? And you watch back, if you just choose any year, and it's not so much about your football team, it's where you were in your life, you know what I mean? And some of them are 20 years old, 20, 25 years old. I mean, the first one was 1993, so what's that? 27, 28 years old. I mean, some of us weren't, well, some of, some people weren't born. I sadly was. But, yeah, it's, it's a throwback to a time um, where you were in your life, where you were in your relationships with your friends, where you were living. Um, I think it's fantastic. And it's probably one of the few things, I'm sort of maybe talking rubbish here, but you see a review of the year. So, for example, you know, as bad a year as it was, the 2020 review of the year is still a, a moment in time. But you never see a review of, of 1997, do you, or, or 2005 on the BBC. Um but, but maybe you should. I, I, I love those sort of nostalgic programs. So, yeah, to be a part of it, to answer your, your original question, was really flattered. And uh, in a slightly selfish way, I thought, well, that's one thing that when I'm gone, hopefully will still be there beyond me. Um, and unless they revoice my years, at least, you know, when I'm very old and grey, I can, uh, it'll still be hopefully on Sky Sports. Um, and yeah, it's 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 great to be involved with something uh, as iconic as that. Absolutely, and, and and I hate to make you feel old. I wasn't born when the Premier League started. I was born in '95. That does make me old. I tell you, that makes me old because '95 is quite a, a, an iconic year for me because uh, I was at Radio Lancashire and I was covering Blackburn Rovers, uh, and I was at Anfield the day they won the title, and I was uh, commentating with Paul Mariner, an old England striker and that's sort of one of the best games or one of the biggest events I think I've been at because Blackburn Rovers I'd been with them for three years at the radio station 
had grown and grown and grown in those early years of the Premier League, haven't they? With Shearer's arrival and Delgleish and Jack Walker's money. So they, they reached the pinnacle. And I think 95 is one of my favourite seasons, actually, of all the Premier League years because of what it means for me personally. But, you know, will you ever see a town win the Premier League again? I doubt it. So, yeah, that, that was uh, a special year for me, but probably more special for you, Callum, <laughs> and your parents. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, you, you mentioned Blackburn and how incredible that moment was. Now, I know the Leicester City story is slightly different because Leicester obviously a bigger place, and you referenced the fact that, that Blackburn is a town, but when Leicester had that incredible season under Claudio Ranieri, did that sort of have tints of nostalgia for you that took you back to those years covering Blackburn? Yes, it did. Yeah, it was partly Blackburn, but it was sort of almost nostalgia for maybe another era when teams could come out of the pack and win the league. You know, I sadly am old enough to remember, you know, Aston Villa winning the league in 1981, I think I want to say. I can just about remember Derby County winning the league. I can remember Wimbledon finishing second in the top flight. I can remember uh, Watford finishing second. So, it was a time when anything was possible. You could be an unfashionable club and suddenly be in with a chance of winning the Premier League. Um, so Leicester rolled back those years, I think, to a time when anyone can have a, a shot at, not anyone, but you know, you can have a viable chance with a good team, good management, good organisation of, of winning the Premier League. I think it's unlike... Nah, I won't say it's unlikely to happen again because that's ridiculous because Leicester was only a few years ago. And this season, in all seasons, and look at Leicester now, they're, they're, they're sort of on the coattails, aren't they, of, of the leaders? But obviously, due to finance, it's becoming harder and harder. So, yeah, that, that, that was just a sensational year. And I still, although I wasn't at the ground on the day, I still, um, it gives me goosebumps when I see um, Claudio Ranieri with the opera singer, Who's oh, my name's escaping Brilliant, yeah, well done, Callum. I knew one of us was prepped for this. Um, when I see that, and when I see him singing, um, and I just see the pride on on Claudio Ranieri's face, then it just really hit home. It's one of to me, it's one of the great Premier League moments. Actually, um, nothing to do with the ball hitting the back of the net, but it was it just sort of symbolised the, the 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 beauty of of Leicester winning the title that year. I agree with that. I think it was one of those moments that, that will never be forgotten for obvious reasons and it's something that Leicester fans will, will always be able to, to say as well, which is, which is fantastic, just as those Blackburn fans can say as well. As well as working in the Premier League, Guy, you've also worked in the Football League, you commentated on it for ITV. How, how much does the Football League mean to you, considering that it was a big part of your career? Because we all see the glitz and glamour of the Premier League and we have the likes of Manchester United and Liverpool who and Arsenal who are the real, maybe three big traditional clubs who have always always been the cream of the crop in many regards. But the Football League has some, some amount of incredible stories and in clubs in itself. It does. I, I absolutely adore the, the Football League and, and the Championship. I was at a game last week uh, for Soccer Saturday, Cambridge United against Harrogate. Sorry, I was just thinking I was going to forget what uh, who they were playing. Cambridge United against Harrogate at the Abbey Stadium. And the fog rolled in. And <laughs> there were four of us on this gantry that 
had a ladder up um, that didn't look the safest. I'm sure it's it's past all its health and safety and what have you. But there were four of us up there watching this game and the fog rolled in and we could not see what was happening on the far side of the pitch. And I just thought, wow, this is absolutely brilliant. How lucky am I that I'm still getting paid to watch football? Um, Cambridge were 1-0 down and ended up winning 2-1. And Wes Houlihan, uh, a player I absolutely adore, who used to play for the Republic of Ireland, who's 38 now, just ran the show. And uh, it was so good to watch. And it just makes you realise, you know, a good game of football is a good game of football. It is so different, the, the Football League. But I absolutely adore it. I think because there's so much pent-up frustration in the Championship. Um, and so when it's released, it, it's one of the great feelings. When Leeds United got promoted, and that's why was, it was so sad that Leeds got promoted during uh, the COVID crisis, because can you imagine what Ellen Rowe would have been like the, the day they got promoted? Can you imagine, you know, what the city centre would have been like the day they got promotion? Um, and the championship is full of so many clubs that were, again, going back to my youth, were great. You know, when I was younger, Sheffield Wednesday, Derby County, um, Nottingham Forest, you know, every time I go back to the city ground and think, wow, this is going to be the season. Surely this is going to be the season. They've signed another 15 players during the summer. Surely this is going to be the season. And they disappoint and they disappoint. But it's that hope. And then you go to the ground. It's a lovely old ground up by the Trent. Um, it's usually full. There's 25,000. They're singing their songs. And you just think, ah, oh, one day you're going to be back in the Premier League. And I love to see the journey of that team and that club back to the Premier League and and living it through the fans, really, because players come and go, managers come and go, but a lot of the supporters were there, you know, the last time Forest were in the, the Premier League, Sheffield Wednesday were in the Premier League, Derby County. Um, and then you get the, the smaller stories, you know, you get Bournemouth. How on earth did Bournemouth get into the Premier League and survive for, what, five seasons? You know, this was a team that not so long ago, they had buckets around their ground, to, to try and stop them going out of existence. They, you know, picked up a 20-point deduction, I think. So there's just so many, as you say, great, great stories coming from the EFL that it, it is very different uh, to the Premier League. And the Premier League is satirised to some point that it's very difficult to unearth any new story about Manchester United or Manchester City or, or Arsenal or Liverpool, um, whether it be a topical story or a historical story. But when you go into the championship, there's so many fantastic stories that, that haven't been told that are still to be told. And um, yeah, I've got a real, real soft spot for that. And, and long may it continue. Just before I let you go, Guy, and, and thanks for being so generous with your time. You've covered the Premier League up close and, and personal for over 20 years. If you had to pick, say, five footballers who mesmerised you and you, you loved watching for whatever reason, who would they be and why? Wow, five. Crikey. Um, right, I'll, I'll, I won't say how I'll support, but I'll give you some clues here. Dennis Burkamp and Thierry Henry will, will be my first two. Um, Dennis Burkamp coming to the Premier League was, it blew my mind. I saw his first game as a possible supporter of one of the two teams. It was Arsenal against Middlesbrough. And I couldn't quite believe that Dennis Burkamp had an Arsenal shirt on and was playing for Arsenal. And that's because pre-Sky, pre-Premier League, the world's best players did not come to England. It's hard to sort of explain that, that hardly any players outside of 
sorry, outside of Britain and, and Ireland, uh, played it played in in England. So Dennis Burkamp, which was what ninety five, I think, um, and before that, I think I might be right saying Zola was before that, um, and we suddenly had these great players. And so, all right, so top five would be Henri definitely, Burkamp definitely, Ronaldo has to be because his um, his progression was staggering. Again, I saw, I think it was his debut uh, against Bolton at Old Trafford. And he did about four or five step overs. And there was an ex-player, I'm not going to say his name. He was actually a manager. And he said, too many lollipops, too much of a showman. He's not going to make it in this league. <laughs> uh, I won't say who it was. So wow. Ronaldo, definitely. Um, little story, I did Ronaldo's first interview, actually, um, in England uh, after he'd had a good game at Old Trafford. So that was a, a, a really nice moment. So uh, we've got two more, haven't we? Uh, crikey, I'm going to miss some obvious ones. Uh, modern day ones. Crikey, I wish you'd give me a bit of time to think about this. So many. Shearer, Shearer, Shearer has to go in. Absolutely loved Alan Shearer. Old school number nine, uh, just crosses from Ripley and 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 from Wilcox from the flanks, getting his big head on it, powering headers, thumping volleys, just you know, typical Dixie Dean, Bob Latchford number nine, scored a shed load of goals, still holds the record, um, absolutely fabulous. And then probably who else could I go with? Zola, I think Zola again is another magnificent player. Um, look, I've missed many out there, haven't I? But it's wonderful, isn't it, how we've seen so many incredible players. And if you do go back to the start of Premier League years, 92, 93, um, look at some of those players there that were playing for, for top clubs and they'd probably be playing, you know, in the championship now. I don't think they'd be some of them, not all of them, obviously, but I think some of them wouldn't get into top teams now so we've come a long way and the standard now is incredible and look at the managers as well again off the top of my head how many foreign managers of that first season in the championship in the uh, the Premier League were there any uh, I don't know but and now we've got Klopp we've got Guardiola we've got you know um, Jose Mourinho we've got Carlo Ancelotti I mean it's extraordinary isn't it it, it, it is a moment in time, really, that the Premier League is, has become this worldly. It certainly has, and, and I look forward to, to your insights with the managers pre and post-match and at press conferences for, for, for many years to come. Guy, thank you so much for your time, and I would love to get you back on in the future. Thank you so much. Oh, cheers, Callum. Thanks very much for asking me. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep-sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep-sea cave And our shells will